Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another episode of the Remnant Podcast brought to you by The Dispatch, which you can find at dispatch.com. And our sponsor for this episode is our good friend, Zip Recruiter. More about them in a little bit. So we um, uh, kind of had a guest fall through and... Um, and did not die. Just, did not do. Just fell through... Fell through, but the current did take them pretty far down the ice. It was it was ugly. We don't we don't need to get into all of that. We just we we hope he's better. And uh, so we're gonna do a little punditry, potpourri, rank punditry kind of stuff, and some Halloween stuff and whatnot. But I, I kind of wanted to <coughs> set this up. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. The House has sort of voted for impeachment. I personally think that this whole thing is too clever by half. <coughs> we can get into some impeachment punditry in a little bit, but basically what Nancy Pelosi is trying to do is have it both ways and have a vote authorizing an impeachment inquiry with at, while giving moderate or I don't know if they're all moderate, but more moderate uh, Democrats who won in districts that went for Trump some political cover to say they didn't actually vote for an impeachment inquiry. They just voted for this inquiry, which is into impeachment. It's got a bit of a sort of Judean people's front versus the people's front of Judea kind of thing going on. And I think it's all too clever by half, um, except a lot, I think a lot of the mainstream media is just treating it. I shouldn't say the mainstream media, the media, because Fox News is treating it as an impeachment vote, too. They're just outraged by it, while a lot of the mainstream media is is celebrating it, but basically this weird distinction that Pelosi and some of the Democrats are standing on, I think is is fundamentally meaningless. Um, I think it's meaningless legally. I think it's meaningless constitutionally. It should be meaningless politically, but maybe it's not. Maybe they've done some focus groups and this is what these Democrats need to say. They are just asking questions or whatever the hell they're going to say. But it's weird. I, I did this tweet I've been having a rough time on Twitter of late, in part because I lost my blue check mark when I changed my name. Um, one day I might get it back. I, I really hope so because I really love, you know, automatic upgrades to first class and all the things that come with a blue check mark. But it makes my mentions more seem more chaotic because when you ha when you have a blue check mark, a lot of people don't know this. One of the columns that you automatically see is responses or retweets or whatever or likes only from other blue check mark people. And now I'm, I have to. I see all of the bots and all of their glory and all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting. So I wrote a column this week. You can find it in the show notes, arguing a version of what Andy McCarthy and my friend Rich Lowry, Andy, Andy's my friend too, um, and uh, and a bunch of other people have argued, which is that setting up this standard that says there was no quid pro quo, it was a perfect call was a politically foolish thing for Trump to do because the plain reading of the thing says there's a quid pro quo. The context says there's a quid pro quo. And a much better place politically and legally to argue is that, yeah, it's sort of the, Mike, the Mick Mulvaney position. Yeah, there was a quid pro quo. Get over it, right? But because Trump has to set this up or with this implication that if you could prove there was a quid pro quo – that would be really bad. It makes it very difficult for him to come to a more defensible piece of land. And so my argument, which is one that Rich and Rich has been making for a long time, a lot of people who are pro-Trump have been making for a long time, which is that, or I should say pro-Trump and or anti-impeachment, which is that he should admit it, say, I now recognize that it was a mistake. I see how it looks. Apologize, because contrition is incredibly powerful in our culture. Apologize. <laughs> and um, and move on and say, look, I don't think, you know, yeah, you know, I see where people are angry about this, but I don't think it even if they're right, it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. This is crazy. We got an election coming up. Um, let's just move on and let the voters decide. I think that's a much more saleable winning argument. Now, I will admit that one of the reasons why I wrote the column is that I knew that Donald Trump would never take my advice. So it was, it was kind of a gimme. But as a matter of analysis, I think it's exactly right or close to exactly right. Um, it is something that I think is actually an argument in Trump's favor. And the reaction on Twitter was really kind of amazing. The pro-Trump people blew 
blew their gaskets and attacked me. Why would anyone take advice from someone like you? That's crazy. He did nothing wrong. The conversation was perfect. I liked one lady actually told me, go read Andy McCarthy. You know, he'll set you straight. And I was like, well, <laughs> I read Andy McCarthy <laughs> and I quoted Andy McCarthy in the column and and I basically buy a chunk of his argument. I disagree with Andy on one thing. I think what he did is impeachable, but that's a different question about whether he should be impeached for it. And then, um, but the weird thing is for me personally, I've been, you know, I've been a, a politics nerd for most of my life for a really long time. And this is one of the first big events in politics that I can remember where I'm really not emotionally invested in it. I think there are really dumb and bad arguments on both sides. I think both parties are behaving in ways that do not redound to the benefit of the republic or themselves or their own reputations or to history or any of that kind of stuff. But I think the House has every right. Uh, the, the, major, the Speaker of the House has the power and the right to handle impeachment as they see fit. All of this stuff about due process, I think, is nonsense as a legal and constitutional matter. As a political matter, I think the Republicans have an argument. And so I, I, I'm just a spectator in a lot of ways on this. And what was sort of fascinating in all of this is that the people who hate me because I'm, skeptic, I'm a Trump skeptic or, quote unquote, a never Trump or whatever you want to call me, they're outraged that I would make this argument and or I would claim to be making it in good faith. And they think it's outrageous that I would suggest that Trump is not telling the truth when he says the call was perfect and he did nothing wrong. And then the anti-Trump people are all up in my junk about how terrible I am for basically saying that if he just apologized, everything would be fine. And that wasn't my argument either. And it's just a, it's a weird place for, for me to sort of be. And it brings me to, for more recent listeners who don't know this, you know, the reason why this podcast is called The Remnant is that it is an allusion to one of my intellectual heroes, this guy, Albert J. Nock. Didn't agree with him on everything, but he was a brilliant, interesting, quirky dude. And I've written about him a bunch. And he wrote this wonderful essay, I believe it was in 1936 for The Atlantic, called Isaiah's Job, where he kind of, he took some liberties in translation to make it an interesting essay, but he basically took the story of Isaiah and the remnant and made this argument about politics, about how the role of certain public intellectuals or writers or whatever, whatever you want to call people like him or people like me, I don't really care, isn't necessarily to move public opinion in any given moment or pledge allegiance to a party or a cause or or lead a, um, some faction. Um, it is simply to tell the truth as you see it and lay down the arguments that you think will be received by a remnant of people who are generally decent, who think about politics in, in ways that you think are decent too. And when everything goes to hell, that remnant is the thing that renewal is based on. I don't know if we can get the audio, but David French a long time ago did a great little riff about how jealous he was about I took the name Remnant because he wanted it for his podcast um, a few months ago. Anyway, the the gist is is that I find myself much more simpatico with people like H.L. Mencken and Albert J. Nock. They were friends and contemporaries. And these other guys from the early part of the 20th century uh, some people call them superfluous men. There was a great book of essays uh, by a guy named Crundon from Chicago cataloging the, super, the superfluous men, these guys who were just sort of – they didn't pick a team. Um, and um, and I've never felt more remnanty in a major political issue than this stuff right now because I cannot muster any enthusiasm whatsoever for Donald Trump to get reelected, and I cannot muster any enthusiasm for Elizabeth Warren – to be reelected, um, all I can do is elected. Elected. Sorry, I apologize. Uh, all I can do is is tell the truth as I see it. I care a lot about conservatism. I I've lost most of my concern for the Republican Party, but I'm not going to go the way of some other people like Jen Rubin or Max Boot, who think that because they are no longer sort of uh, consonant with where the Republican Party is that that means they have to stop being conservatives. I think that's sort of ridiculous. And so I think one of the interesting things about this moment is that people like me, who are sort of leaning more into their classical liberalism to a certain extent, being a classical liberal where you actually believe in the process, you think liberty and, and the rule of law and, and free markets and all of these kinds and limited government, if you believe in those things in a climate that is basically a battle between socialists and nationalists, 
that kind of makes you the new centrist, you know, and that's a new place for me to be. I don't know that I navigate it well all the time, and I know it pisses off a lot of my friends when I talk like this, but that's the truth of it, and at least as I see it. And um, that's one of the reasons why Steve and Toby and I started the dispatches. We think that there's this opportunity to be serious conservatives who care about conservative ideas and make serious arguments about conservatism, which will mean that we will end up defending Republicans more often than Democrats on a lot of issues because Republicans are still the more conservative of the two. Um, but we're not going to carry water for him. And we're not, certainly not going to carry water for Trump. And we're not going to say things that we don't believe to be true. And we're going to report facts and call them like we see them. And that doesn't mean shedding our conservatism in any stretch of the imagination. But it does mean that sometimes telling the truth is going to run counter the truth as we see it. Look, people can disagree on facts. But, but it means that telling the truth as we see it sometimes is going to run contrary to the interests of certain politicians and certain parties. And if that makes people mad and that makes them shout, it's a binary choice, it's a binary choice like King George into a bowl of porridge or something, they're allowed to do that. But that's that's sort of how I see it. That's where I'm coming from. And, you know, I figure I should, you know, it was a good opportunity to just sort of tell new listeners and maybe and remind some old listeners about where I'm coming from in all of this. So anyway, Jack, the producer of this podcast, had an idea for a, a, a theme to the pudding, um, which is to sort of uh, bootstrap off of Halloween. Today is Halloween, which is a bittersweet thing for me because my daughter loves Halloween so much and she's not around. So we're not dressing up as zombies, which I'm a little relieved by. His daughter is still alive, everyone. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. My daughter is... been very ambiguous about people today. I just have to clarify that... Well, Aubrey J. Nock is dead. That's right. Uh, to paraphrase Joe Biden in 2012, Lucy Goldberg is alive and Albert J. Nock is dead. <laughs> um, and we're supposed to be – is that why we should reelect you? Yes, by all means. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, so we've got this Halloween idea and Jack, why don't you explain what you're thinking here? Yeah, I think that we should try to imagine what the uh, – as we know, fear is the mind killer – and we, so we should try to imagine that uh, what the leading political figures in public life today are most afraid of. Not in terms of their, like, uh, I don't know, they're afraid of spiders or something, but things, outcomes that are within the realm of plausibility that keep them awake at night. So does that make sense? Yeah, right. So it's not spiders or snakes or uh, finding out that your proctologist can't get his high school ring off. Um, before the examination, <laughs> but rather political stuff, right? Yes. Like worst case scenarios, as it were. Yeah. So we should start. I think we should. I've tried to. I've made a list, and I tried to put them in order of power. So there's the obvious. The obvious first is our president, Donald Trump. Right. And uh, what what do you think he is the most afraid of, in terms of political outcomes? Yeah. And so the, the nice thing about this is 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 that as we go through it. The worst case scenarios for these people turn out to be the best case scenarios for other people, right? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, or can be. And we should be clear, we have not spent an enormous amount of time game planning out this podcast, so we're just winging it here. But Nor have we spent any time trying to make any of the worst case scenarios that we may describe happen in real life. Correct. Well, I, I, you have a long list there, so I can't promise that. But <laughs> okay. Okay, but the first person, Donald, Donald Trump, I think... I actually think the worst case scenario for him may not, in fact, be impeachment and removal because Donald Trump is quite adept at playing the martyr. And uh, there are people in Washington. This is a scary scenario for some people, including some people who are talking to you right now. I was talking to somebody yesterday who is a big political guy, and he was saying that if Trump loses in 2020, he will like a South American caldillo claim that he is he was robbed and that he is uh, a president in exile in internal exile and he will run he will be the front runner for 2024 and he will hold on to his people and he'll be liberated in a certain way to really gin them up with his new television network and whatnot which would give me a big headache so anyway I, I think the worst case scenario for him is that impeachment damages him but he but not so much that he doesn't claim vindication and exoneration, right? Sort of like how he took the Mueller report, which in a real world should have at least damaged him because there was a lot of disturbing stuff in there, even though it didn't find collusion. Um, but he has this ability to claim victory, make 
total victory out of you know a a passing grade. And so he then runs in 2020 and loses decisively. And I think that uh, and then he goes home to his Trump Tower Elba or to Mar-a-Lago or wherever, and a whole slew of criminal prosecutions, which are already bubbling up in New York and maybe some other places, start going after him. And since Mike Pence is not president, uh, the odds of Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warden pardoning him are very low, and they can't pardon him for state crimes anyway. And I know people think that he's the world's greatest negotiator and businessman and all of these kinds of things. And I, I saw a clip today that Michelle Bachman said, we've never had a president with such moral clarity, um, which you know makes me want to cut myself. But uh, I think it is entirely plausible that he spends the rest of his life in courtrooms and, and, con- and, and conceivably in jail. Remember, it's a worst case scenario. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that's the, the most obvious thing, but that would be, I think, the thing. And in the process of all of that, with the discovery of his tax returns and all these other things, people find out he was never as rich as he claimed. Everybody who worked for him abandoned ship like you wouldn't believe. Prosecutors play king for the day with all of these people who tell all of these stories from the inside, and he becomes a true laughingstock in history. I think that's the that's the thing that if if he had the time horizon to think these things through, that I think he would should be most terrified of. That sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> in terms of in terms of probably the things he's most afraid of uh what about pence is it that is it that he that pence ends up going down with the ship no i think of the nightmare scenarios that have the most ring of i mean look again eaten by wolves right i mean so (laughs) there are all sorts of things you can come up with i think that um there's a really non-trivial chance if not likelihood that trump in a moment of sobriety, looks at the numbers, finds someone who he trusts, Ivanka or somebody, and who says, you're going to lose. And in a Hail Mary way, Trump dumps Pence. I've not met anybody in Washington who thinks Trump is not morally capable of throwing Pence under the bus, right? And replaces Pence with, you know, a lot of people think, Nikki Haley would be the best choice. Uh, full disclosure, my wife works for Nikki Haley, but this is my own punditry. I don't think Nikki would take it unless there were some really unusual circumstances. And I think that a lot of people who are talking about them grooming Tulsi Gabbard, and I don't mean as a Russian asset, uh, okay. to run a third party, that there's a non-trivial chance that, that they're really grooming her to be Pence's replacement. And so the the nightmare scenario for Pence is that he plays the good soldier a little bit, but Trump responds to the criticisms of about dumping him by just humiliating Pence, making him, you know, which he has done to many people. On the way out, he always has to throw shade at people um, who worked for him, you know, whether it was John Bolton or John Kelly or whoever. Or Jeff Sessions for someone not named John. Right, or, or Jeff Sessions. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And it is entirely plausible to me that Pen- that Trump goes on... Hannity and reveals what, you know, he was always a never Trumper or, or whatever and completely delegitimizes Pence with the only part of the Republican Party that still really likes him and makes all of the humiliating sacrifices that Pence has made totally not worth it. And and he becomes also sort of a laughing stock. That's the one thing all politicians fear more than almost anything else is, you know, other than carnies, is <laughs> is um, to be not just unpopular because there's a certain pride that comes in unpopularity, right? You can be the... Yeah, I know a lot about that. <laughs> um, you know, like people like Barry Goldwater or Ted Cruz, you know, or FDR. I mean, there are lots of politicians who have said, I take their scorn as a badge of honor and all that kind of stuff. But if the laughingstock stuff comes from the part of the electorate that he's been cultivating his entire life, it would be really sad and pathetic. So that's what I think his biggest fear is. I feel like you're writing sort of Greek tragedies in by this not exactly uh, worst case scenarios. But I guess sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Yeah. Well, and also, you've, you've again, you've ruled out, you know, having a all the fun stuff like having a 
half-starved weasel sewn into his abdomen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that that just that we could we could we would have to probably make this podcast rated R if we let our imaginations run wild. Fair enough, fair enough. Um all right, so Nancy Pelosi, what is she most afraid of? Um that this whole I think again within the realm of the possible, I think the thing she's most afraid of is the thing that has been foremost in her mind in <coughs> in forestalling this impeachment drive for so long that the Democrats screw it up and that something comes out, which I don't think is too fanciful to speculate on, that turns out that Schiff behaved unethically, maybe even illegally or whatever, that they screwed up this this stuff. They've screwed up almost every public hearing they've had related to sort of get Trump stuff so far. Um, the Corey Lewandowski thing, you know, in a more just world about halfway into that, you know, a side panel would have opened up in the room and rabid dogs would have been released and just torn everybody hey, apart. Hey, remember what I said about the the, the rating of this Okay, podcast. yeah, well, okay. Well, <laughs> all right. So, um and uh no violence. Oh, I can't I can't make any promises. And um <laughs> so uh so it's entirely possible that they screw it up and that these Democrats that we mentioned before about who want to have this political cover about voting for impeachment, all lose. And Trump gets back the House, increases his margin in the Senate, and goes into 2020 with a politically sellable argument that, you know, the Democrats tried to take me out a bunch of times. They kept failing. And, you know, uh, I deserve, you know, another four years and it works. And I, I think that's possible. And I certainly think that's possible when you actually look at how bad some of the most likely Democratic nominees are to be good messengers in all of this, particularly if the impeachment thing fizzles. So it could be that Pelosi is setting herself up for total failure. She really likes being Speaker. If she loses the House again, she will have to retire and she'll never be Speaker again. And that would make her very sad. Yeah. Uh, I was I was going to ask you if you thought she would retire if if she lost the house again. You answered that for me. I think she has to, right? I mean, I mean, Newt did in '98 because the uh, they were supposed to gain seats, and they, I guess they gained a couple, but there was supposed to be a big win, and it turns out that impeachment blew up in Newt's face. Um, I think these comparisons between '98 and now, some of them are interesting. I mean, I was a very close student of all of that <laughs> at the time, and oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, um, but I don't think. Um, the comparisons on either side are all of that illuminating. Um, and actually, this brings up something that is sort of one of the dumb arguments that I really don't like is that when you hear Republicans talk about the glorious tradition of how we've handled impeachments in the past, they make it sound like, you know, like some monk takes down these these giant tomes from a shelf and looks up the thousands of impeachments that have happened in the past, this grand tradition of these things. And in reality, you know, there have been two actual impeachments and one resignation to avoid impeachment. That is not a huge database of precedents to sort of say this is how these things have to be done. You're forgetting all of the impeachments that happened in uh, the lost civilizations that have vanished from the historical record. That is true. And also, I mean, and, and to be fair... There have been impeachments of judges, and there are those rules that apply to all of that. But anyway, um, all right. So the next, the next figure whose whose depths of fear we shall probe is Mitch McConnell. I I can answer this one. Mitch McConnell, to the extent that he shows emotion at all after all these years of 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 steely drug trading, surely a, a, an institutionalist such as he fears nothing more than just losing his Senate majority. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the the. The thing I, I mean, I, I am a longtime Mitch McConnell admirer. I wouldn't say I'm a huge, I'm not a robust fan. He does not, he's not the kind of personality that like inspires fandom. <laughs> um, but uh, I think Mitch McConnell clearly, one of the things I like about Mitch McConnell is he's a, truly an institutionalist. You know, one of our half baked ideas is to ban senators from running for president for at least a, a respectable period of time. Mm -hmm. He's never wanted to run for president. He never thought about running for president. He wants to be the leader of the Senate. He knows the rules. He loves the Senate. And 
And I think he's legitimately terrified of losing control of the Senate, not just for him, but he actually thinks that if the Senate, if, if, the, if the Democrats take the Senate, they will get rid of the filibuster, um, particularly if they win by a big enough margin. I mean, I think that's a heavier lift than people think. Uh-huh. But I think he's definitely worried about that. And if they get rid of the legislative filibuster, they will destroy the reason for the Senate's existence. They will do profound damage to the country. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote that column the way I wrote it, is that I think if Trump apologized and admitted it, he's still going to get impeached. I don't think – I think it improves his chances of not being removed. But it actually gives a, a a talking point to Republicans who have to run for re-election in the Senate to be able to say, look, the president admitted he made a mistake. He apologized for it. Let's move on. That's That was one of the most brilliant things about Bill Clinton's eventual apology in the Lewinsky thing was once he apologized and said, I don't think I should be impeached for this, but I apologize and I'm I'm seeking counsel and yada, yada, yada. It let other Democrats say, okay, look, he admitted it. He's apologized for it. I don't think he should be impeached. We got more important things to do. Let's move on. And moveon.org was born out of that precise argument. Uh, and I always didn't trust moveon.org. I always thought that they were just going to be a straight up left wing outfit the second they no longer had impeachment to raise money off of. And I was absolutely correct. But um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I think. The fear for him is, I mean, obviously as a politician, he wants to get reelected himself. But I think the real abiding fear for him is that by so far, I think pretty ably and cleverly working with the Trump administration, but not giving himself over to the Trump administration, that historians will go back and say he screwed that up. He lost his seat or he lost the majority. And look at all these terrible things that flowed from that. So his counterpart, Chuck Schumer, of what is he the most afraid? Uh, pretty much everything that Nancy Pelosi is afraid of. Yeah. I mean um, – I don't see there's, – there's nothing really specific to him that I can think of that's different aside from their different offices. Yeah. And um, Schumer's – I used to think Schumer was a much savvier politician, but he's – it's weird. Like for most of my life, I've thought that the Democrats were just better at politics and – I think the disruption of Trump has, you know, obviously it has downsides. But one of the interesting things is it's really thrown Democrats off their game. They don't know how – and this is what, you know, Trump defenders love about Trump and I understand that is that by playing the game so differently, they've really exposed how the Democrats by being sort of Gramscian long march through the institution radicals, if you change the rules of the institutions – they can't recover very quickly and and adapt to the new rules of the game. So I, I don't know. Other than that, I, I can't think of anything particular to Schumer. And and you would probably call say that Kevin McCarthy has similar fears to his to his Senate equivalent. Yeah, I mean, I think these days the thing that terrifies him the most is that Scalise is going to replace him. I mean, the stuff that Scalise is doing, which I think is ridiculous at times. Um, it was really shocking to see him join the storming of the skiff. Oh, I didn't um, know that Scalise was part of that. Yeah, and he's going around constantly calling this a Soviet-style impeachment, which is really dumb, and he knows better. First of all, I challenged listeners, go look up on the Google machine the Soviet Constitution. Um, there's not a robust impeachment mechanism. Um, That's probably not the best way to ascertain this, because the Soviet Constitution was not followed. That's true. And That's true. it was just made up, mm-hmm. basically. It was a promise of a bunch of positive rights that the Soviet Union right. didn't provide, and it ignored. Well, and as much as it doesn't have any legal, real real legal mechanisms for much of anything, it might be useful, but... Yeah, no, point taken, point taken. But my point is, is that, um, you know, the... This, this, this talk about Soviet-style impeachment is sort of the talk about, like, you know... Um, North Dakotan style anti gravity machines. I mean, it's just it's it's just it's a nonsense talking point. And I also think now who's being naive? <laughs> I think that, like the way even friends of ours like Hugh and others talk about you know it being a star chamber and all of this kind of stuff is is all nonsense. You know, there were Republicans in the room. You can think it's unfair to Trump, you, which is a perfectly plausible thing to argue. You can think 
that politically this is sort of a low-handed and dastardly way to run things, which our friend Adam White makes a good case for, and I think it's probably right. But the simple fact is, is that this was a fact-gathering phase. And people who say it's outrageous to run this like a grand jury, well, grand juries have much less due process rights involved in them than what this had. And, you know, in the grand jury, the witnesses aren't even allowed to bring their lawyers in. And they can do whatever they want. The prosecutor can basically ask anything they want and and um, and do anything they want to get facts. President Trump's team, as it were, had a lot more rights in these hearings than anybody in a grand jury, you know, a, a, a target of an investigation has in a grand jury. All right. So if you want a, to me to supply a transition for you to the ad, this is the point where I move beyond people who have actual political power to people who – either used to have political power or, or or who are seeking it again. Such as? Uh, uh, Joe Biden is the one I'm – as I'm, I want to do next. So you can – Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel you, – you feel awkward that I have tried to supply a transition for you. Yes. I mean it, it, you're breaking the fourth wall to a certain extent, right? Um, what, what fourth wall? Let's be real. <laughs> when, when we broke the fourth wall on this thing, the first or second episode. That's probably fair. You can ignore me. I can remove this. I, I've done that before. You have? <laughs> um, um, so Joe Biden. Um, I can't think of a good transition to a ZipRecruiter ad because of Joe Biden. Okay. Well, let's just talk about Joe Biden. <laughs> okay. And maybe maybe one will organically emerge through the spontaneous order of our conversation. So I is Joe Biden – is the thing that Joe Biden the most afraid of that his, his, uh, de- his decaying f- uh, flesh vessel will – expire before he can reach the White House. It does seem at times that the Biden meat suit. Meat is, suit. That's the better word. Is coming apart. No, um, I don't know. I mean, I, look, I, I, I've never been a huge fan of Joe Biden. I've made a career off of making fun of all sorts of things about Joe Biden. I had a really popular post years ago. I keep trying to find about how because he had, you know, he has these um, fake teeth. And for years he would do this thing after he got them where he would kind of use his teeth like semaphore signals while talking and he would flash these weird smiles in the middle of it that, you know, were kind of nuts. And I always used to think that like he was flashing in semaphore sort of or like or Morse code or whatever the, the you know, someone please get me to stop talking. I can't stop this thing because he would just go on and on and on. I, to be fair to Biden, though, I do think he's a fundamentally personally kind of decent guy um, who's said some indefensible things to be sure. Um but most of the indefensible things that he said is just because he has logoria and, and and can't stop talking and his the, the whatever you know little switch in the brain that makes you stop from revealing your inner monologue he's not really ever had. But I think a, a legitimate sort of sad thing that he's probably afraid of is that something really bad comes out of all of this about Hunter Biden. And you know, he's lost a bunch of kids to death and he clearly loves his kid and i think that's one of the reasons why he's handled a lot of this badly and hunter biden's a shady dude and you could see somehow something coming out on all of this that would be really bad on a political front i i think his probably greatest fear is to once again not be taken seriously and i mean the problem with biden the reason why biden often gets into so much trouble very similar to trump in some ways is that you he, you can kind of see it percolating beneath him the burning desire for everyone to take him incredibly seriously like you know that one of the recent screw ups he had where he told that story about the general asking him to go decorate someone on a mountain that he got everything wrong you know he he literally said and I again I mean literally not figuratively the way Joe Biden means literally he literally said something like uh I give you my word as a Biden. And then he messed it all up and said all sorts of things that weren't true. And to come out of this, having been the vice president and the front runner and with this, the most plausible path to beating Trump and ends up again as a laughing stock, which I think is entirely possible, is probably the thing that he's most afraid of. And I think he's not really well served by his campaign, in part because his campaign doesn't seem to have an enormous amount of respect for him um, or know how to manage him. And it probably is 
why he probably should have gone to ZipRecruiter when he was looking to staff his campaign. There we go. That's much better. <laughs> so uh, hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Boom. All right. Do what, do you, want... what do you think this the CEO of coffee is the most afraid of? <laughs> um, a huge boom in tea sales? <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. That that runs beyond the ground of our speculation. <clears throat> uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> oh wow! I didn't know. I I didn't see what I did there. Uh, wow! I'm impressed with myself. It's it's almost like your filter wasn't working. <laughs> let's move on now. Move on. Let's move on. Dot org now. Uh, to Elizabeth Warren, what is she most afraid of? That someone will talk too loudly in the library, perhaps? Um, ah, at this point, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, for some of these people, we're now just moving into conventional candidates running for office, right? Uh -huh. I mean, like, I suppose she could be worried that, you know, Trump gets reelected and she is one of the reasons why de Democrats lose the House, which I think is a possibility because – you know, running on seizing the means of production is not necessarily the best thing to do. And I understand that she's running a really good primary campaign, but I don't think the way she's running a really good primary campaign is necessarily translatable into running a good general election campaign. But other than that, I mean, I just, you know, I, maybe there's a possibility that the Indian DNA thing comes up for some good reason. I mean, if you listen to our friend David French, it really is amazing how much stuff she's gotten away with that under normal circumstances, well, I wouldn't say normal circumstances, but that if the press weren't interested in anointing her, we get a lot more scrutiny and a lot more condemnation. But other than that, she's just, you know, she's she's a, convent, a fairly conventional, very left-wing Democrat. And I think that, you know, her fears, you know, are probably just like to find out that, um, her ideological agenda doesn't sell nearly as well as she thinks it does. I don't know. I mean, are, are the rest of these guys just basically politicians? Uh, not all of them. Or not all of them are going to be are the same kind of politician. But I, I think, to return to what David French said, I think perhaps her fear is that a steady accumulation of these resume exaggerations that she – there is documented evidence in the press for mm -hmm. uh, amounts to a sort of uh, steady and gradual erosion of the sort of platform that she has built for herself. Like yeah. If it turns out that it, at critical junctures a, a seemingly minor fib or exaggeration turned out to have been essential to the path that she ended up on. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's part of David's point about – you know, when she got to Harvard, it was in the middle of a riotous controversy there where people had resigned and all this kind of stuff because they didn't have any minority faculty or something like that. Yeah. And the idea that Harvard hired her with putting out, like, a, I believe, like a press release saying that, you know, she was Native American and all this kind of stuff, for her to pretend it had nothing to do with her hiring – Again, I, I don't want to get out ahead of what the actual facts were, but my understanding is something like that. That could end up being really, really embarrassing. The other thing, now that I think about it, there are a bunch of feminists 
in Washington and in political consulting circles and other people, but you know, the feminists have an ideological investment in this that's a little different, who really worry that if the Democrats nominate women back to back and they lose back to back, the argument will be made for a generation that women are a liability on a Democratic ticket, at the top of a Democratic ticket. Mm -hmm. And I could see that really bothering Elizabeth Warren. I'm not sure that's true. I think it's so personality dependent. Um, Well, just remember that experiment that was done with the gender swapping uh, of of Trump and Hillary. Mm-hmm. Remember? Do you do you hear about this? Mm-mm. Oh, uh, so I can't remember who did this, but basically, someone. Uh, so I think it was a university f- found two actors, like they, like an open casting call. It was done in such a way, and then with the ultimate audience, that this was all no one actually knew what this was for. But the, so they but they restaged one of the debates huh. uh, with a like sort of. I don't know, like, uh, imagine like an American Emmanuel Macron Mm -hmm. as playing Hillary as a man Mm -hmm. and a sort of like, uh, I'm sure you knew these like hard charging Bronx mothers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. From your New York upbringing as, as Trump. Melissa McCarthy. (laughs) Yeah. So like they, they, they gender swapped the roles and like had the, the female act like Trump, but Mm -hmm. be female and had the male act uh, like Hillary, but be male, and the female candidate, like in this in this sort of double blind audience, won these debates hmm. uh, by acting in the way that Trump did, like being blunt and brash, and like uh, interrupting the male candidate all the time. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. It's a hard thing to test, but it was a, yeah. it was a, it was a, and it's like impossible to get data points for this. But yeah. it was, I think, it's a potentially useful experiment to have conducted because that goes to what you're saying that. It's very personality driven. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, 2016 was unique. I recently relooked at the, the some of the data for this. Donald Trump was the most unpopular major party nominee in American history, running against the second most unpopular major party nominee <laughs> in American history, and uh, I think it was Pew, maybe it was Gallup, but you know. of Trump voters said they would be disappointed if Trump won. (laughs) And uh, and a similar number about Hillary. I mean, it was really – it was the perfect sort of negative polarization kind of election where most of the voters were voting against the other person rather than for somebody. And that wouldn't have been the case with any female candidate, right? It was unique to Hillary. And the – and I used to have – I used to write these columns all the time about how – you know, the problem for Hillary is that she no longer counts as a woman. And I don't mean that in some cruel or mean sense. I just meant it is that identity politics works best on people who are freshly introduced to the public, like Barack Obama, where he was sufficiently unknown and he was a sufficiently good politician who played to all sorts of different constituencies and seemed like all things to all people that People like the idea of voting for the first African-American president. And Hillary Clinton would have been obviously the first female president, but people didn't see her as a sort of a, a an avatar for an identity politics group. They saw her as this woman who has annoyed them for 30 years. And by leaning so heavily on the women's stuff, it annoyed a lot of people. And – or at least it wasn't all that effective. So I don't know. I mean I, I think, you know, uh, that – Anyway, my only point about bringing all this up was that if Elizabeth Warren lost and lost decisively to Donald Trump, um, that argument about women being liabilities as the as the front as the top of the ticket would get more credence, and I'm sure that would make her very sad. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Almost as sad as everybody getting richer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, what a bummer that is. Um, but since we spent so much talking time just now, just talking about her. Has Hillary's worst plausible political fear already been realized, losing an election to Donald Trump? Yeah. I mean... I guess ending up in prison for some unpunished uh, legal violation, perhaps. Well, I mean, the other well, the, the other great fear she could have, I and mean, we're talking about... Oh, oh, all the Arkansides being traced back to her. There's that, but um, slightly more plausible than that is... <laughs> um, there is talk about how she's hasn't completely ruled out getting back in the race. And if for whatever reason she could actually do that and get the nomination, which I think is highly unlikely. <laughs> um, 
and then losing to Trump again, uh, that that would be Sisyphusian in its horror for her, right? <laughs> uh, but I, I, again, I, I very much doubt that would happen. Uh, okay. Well, what about her her erstwhile competitor, Bernie Sanders? What is he most afraid of? That the revolution will not be complete. Well, I mean, the thing is, he's a, he's kind of in a win win situation. I mean, uh, I've been arguing for a while now that he's already like the Barry Goldwater of the Democratic Party. Remember, in, yeah, in sixty four, Goldwater. Oh yeah, I remember. I was there. Yeah, yeah. He loses pretty <laughs> decisively, and and was going to lose no matter what, given the Kennedy stuff and all that. But but in his loss, his troops. His true believers basically took over the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and George Will has this great little passage where he says, you know, where he just sort of does the begats from William F. Buckley to Ronald Reagan and it goes through Barry Goldwater. And um, Bernie's sort of already accomplished that because almost everybody in that Democratic primary, now there's a little separation by Buttigieg and Klobuchar, but basically everybody in that primary except for Biden has been up until the last two weeks running as a sort of cheap Bernie knockoff. And so I think he goes I think he goes to the bitter end. I think he takes it to the convention if he can. So I the 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 worst case scenarios for him can't be that terrifying to a 78-year-old dude with an enormous amount of money and 100 times more fame than he deserves. <laughs> um and so I guess Losing would be bad for him, but that's sort of not terrifying within normal parameters. And I, I, I think maybe if his health took him out of it, you know, which is possible, uh, having heart attacks is statistically very bad for seventy-eight-year-olds or seventy-seven-year-old, whatever he is. He's old. I believe he, he's old. He's an old. Um, <laughs> and so beyond that, it's very hard. There's nobody in the field that would make him cry into his government issue pillow while eating his government cheese. Um, about uh, the direction of the Democratic Party because he kind of he personally likes Joe Biden, um, and Biden will probably pick if he's the nominee some crazy left winger and um, so, SVP. Yeah, SVP. So, and I, I think that Ber- Bernie's Bernie's you know in great position. You know, historically he likes where things are going. He likes how he'll he thinks he'll be remembered. He's had vastly more success than he deserves to have had. You know. For basically a left-wing Burlington gadfly who was kicked out of a commune because he refused to work because he had to talk to people so much. So I think it's very hard to see. I mean, again, he'd be very sad if Donald Trump was reelected, you know. Um, but beyond that, he's he's already won in a lot of ways. Okay. This figure might th- may throw you for a loop because he doesn't really belong on this list necessarily. But we'll see what you have to say. What is Rudy Giuliani afraid of? Oh God! Uh, <laughs> I don't know. He's become so addicted to just being in the limelight, you know. And people who know him just—I you hear from people that he's just having a great time, and he loves seeing his text messages explode when he's on TV and all these kinds of things. I do think probably his worst nightmare, which I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm not a fan of what Rudy has turned into, but. He was an amazing prosecutor. He was a great mayor, and which at the very least suggests that there's a part of his brain that still knows right from wrong. And a truly terrifying thing for him would be if this Southern District of New York investigation, his old office, actually finds something prosecutable about him and he ends up going to jail. I mean, that would be the most tragic and humiliating thing I can imagine for someone like him. And yeah. and I don't think even at his age he could be put in general pop. Um, <laughs> but uh, again, I don't think that's likely necessarily and all that kind of stuff, but I think that would be terrifying. A more plausible thing of terror for him is for Trump to decide, and I think this is this is much more plausible, that Trump decides they need a sacrificial lamb to sort of sweeten the pot to get out of this impeachment bind or something. And they throw Rudy under the bus and say, this guy was freelancing all of this stuff in Ukraine and I didn't do it. And Rudy was running a rogue op that I didn't approve and blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying that that's true. And I would hope that Rudy at the very least has enough of a saved enough of a paper trail to prove that that's wrong. But the Trump controlled media types, if told that the way to save Trump is to turn on Rudy, they will turn on Rudy. And that would be a very sad way to go. Yeah. 
So I'll, for the the last couple are just the like asterisk or maybe slightly more than asterisk level Democratic candidates. So I won't make you. I'll just list them, and you can if you have thoughts on any of their fears, you can. Okay, sort of like party favor bag. Yeah. So we got Mayor Pete, uh-huh. uh, Kamala Harris, Tulsi Gabbard or Gabbard. Is it Gabbard? I believe it's Gabbard. Oh, okay. Like, rhymes with Scabbard. Yeah, that's right. And then uh, Beto, uh, Robert Francis O'Rourke. Well, so Beto seems to be on track. Like, a lot of these people, the scenarios that we've been painting are not the most likely scenarios. Yeah. He's really on, sort of like Hillary, her worst case scenario, she's living in it right now, basically. <laughs> Beto is on track for exactly the same thing. He... Has and he's kind of it's kind of cruel that Texas election people don't understand or he didn't understand that the mainstream media's fawning coverage of him, the Vanity Fair stuff, the ridiculous videos, and I mean, I mean, I saw stuff from blue checkmark people talking about how. They could just tell that Beto was one of the world's greatest lovers. I mean, like weird stuff, right? Oh. He he took all that stuff seriously. And it turned out that really just that, you know, surprise, surprise, people at the New York Times and Vanity Fair really wanted Ted Cruz to lose. And so they mounted this PR campaign and elevated him to the point of Messiah status. And, you know, and he believed it. And so he has deliberately, and now he's sort of addicted to it, right? And so he loses that race and everyone says, well, he got it within four points. That proves how great he is. It really doesn't because the thing about Texas is that Ted Cruz is not particularly popular, but Ted, but, but Ted Cruz is a really savvy politician, which is why he went around campaigning, not about you need to reelect me. He went around campaigning on you need to keep Texas red. And so any other Republican of similar stature and prominence probably would have beaten Beto by eight or ten points. And it was Ted's unpopularity in the state among Republicans that made it close for Beto, not his not Beto's ability to wear blue shirts and jump on tables. <laughs> and um, and so Beto thinks he's got this rendezvous with destiny because of how he did in the Texas race and because he believes all of this fawning coverage. And he gets into the race and he goes nowhere because he's really – he's kind of annoying. And um, Is that a technical term? Yeah. I mean he's, he's you know, uh, like one of these guys you, know, you, met, you met in college who um, because a handful of cute girls and or freshmen um, hang on his every word, he thinks he's – you know, the, the, the secular redeemer of, of society. And he believes all of his BS and he got no traction. All, the liberal media completely turned on him and, you know, started treating him sort of like a beta male. He, you know, he got out of Congress to run against Cruz in the first place. And, and now he's accepted positions. He's, he's endor- embraced positions that kind of make him a laughing stock. And, um, Unfortunately, the gods have seen fit to let him marry the daughter of a billionaire, so he will never be asking anybody if they want fries with that. But I think he's well on his way to basically being like a John Edwards type, you know, an answer to a trivia question, someone who's like a big deal on a small campus somewhere, um, but goes off into obscurity really soon. I mean, I'll be surprised. Here's a quick quiz for you and, and for listeners to just show you how short people's memories are. Who was Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016? Uh, it was Tim Kaine. Okay. I ask these people this all the time. It takes some people a while to remember his name. Yeah, I, I just happened to be thinking of him yesterday because apparently he and Ted Cruz had a uh, a World Series-related bet huh. uh, about, like, I think if, if, if the Astros won, then Tim Kaine had to give Ted Cruz um, crab cakes and some drink. And yeah. if, if the... If the Nats won, which I assume Ted Ted Cruz is now going to do this, then uh, Ted had to give Tim uh, like some kind of Texas barbecue thing and some like Texas specific alcohol. I don't know what I can't remember what it was. 
I mean, there's all sorts of Texas beers. I don't know what a Texas booze would be. Um, well, I, I can't remember. But so I, I, I had the advantage of having. I don't. I don't spend most of my days thinking, thinking long and hard about Tim Kaine. He's not the. N- no one does. <laughs> I mean, he, he's the answer to a question nobody ever asked. Um, I thought that was forty-two. The last. So is, is that is, is that all well, you have who, to say? Yeah, about, I, I'm, about I'm done. Work? I'm done with Beto. The last. So is the country. <laughs> well, we'll see. The last one on here. I don't. I can answer this one. Mm-hmm. It's Andrew Yang. We know what his worst fear is. We've seen it depicted in film many times, and we'll see it again this weekend. Chuds? What? Robot uprising. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The machines take over. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, he's made his worst fear very apparent, mm-hmm. uh, and he has sort of run his whole campaign more or less on that. So we don't need to. We don't even need to speculate. Yeah, I like Yang, and people keep asking to, for me to have him on the show. And if anybody in the Yang campaign is listening, I'd love to have him on the show. I'd love to talk to him. I think he's an interesting guy. Disagree with him some, with some stuff, but and I think the cliche about who would you want to have a beer with is wildly overdone. But of that field, by far, he's the guy I would wouldn't mind having a beer with. He seems like a decent dude who's too liberal for me to, for politics, but like sensible and good family guy and funny and self-aware self-aware like it's almost uh uh uncanny for a politician to be self-aware yeah and um and it's funny i was just telling john pedwards this the other day i've been trying for a while now to find a way that is not too forced to reference the star trek episode where the planet is is riven by the yangs and the combs and uh original series yeah what i can't remember the name of it right now what did the what did the the warring factions look like so the 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 combs were asiatic for the most part and okay. the yangs were like and they were in charge and the Com- and the yangs were sort of like uh disheveled hill people okay um and caucasian and it turned out that this was a planet where they had had a american revolution and they were defeat and the americans were defeated by the communists that's what and the so the yangs were yanks and the combs were communists oh and then james kirk invest finds the sacred document that the the combs the yangs worship which is the uh declaration of independence oh yeah and they start quoting it they're going to e- i always remember e plebista is the one of the things languages it's not e plebista it's we the people and kirk gives one of his wild you know star student from overacting school performances is uh-huh. the Declaration of Independence. Um, I'm sure you can find the video in the... Well, we we the people is from the Constitution. Yeah, okay, from the Constitution. I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, my, my, the Straussians who educated me compelled me to demand... No, it's just I talk so much about the Declaration these days ever since the book came out that oh, I, it's yeah. always the first thing that comes to my head. Oh, excuse me. The, the Straussians that educated me would forgive you for eliding the two. That's they are right. one. That's right. Same. Seamless garment. Yes. Um, so that's uh, that's all that's on my list. Is okay. there anyone else you feel like uh, whose fear, whose whose inner psyches you feel like probing? Well, I mean, I could cast a lot of shade of people in the media who have invested an enormous amount, one way or the other, in the current political climate. But I, 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 I don't need to go that far out of my way to make more enemies of friends. So we probably don't need to do that. Um, okay. <laughs> are you well, doing anything exciting for Halloween? Well, I am 300 pages into the dead zone uh-huh. right now, and I'll probably finish it tonight. Um, Are you going to read it on the steps of the Georgetown steps? No, and um, we should explain to new listeners that. Oh yeah, what, th- uh, two years ago you did this. Two years ago, yeah. When I was sort of an unknown quantity, even more than I am now, I spent Halloween uh, 2017 on the Exorcist steps. I finished the book, The Exorcist, there, and uh, performed. Dramatic readings of it for passersby upon request. I saw a priest walk down the steps and told him to be careful. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I gave trivia out to people who. It's just a fun. It's a funny place to be because people just feel compelled to go there for yeah. no particular reason. Just like see what goes on. Apparently, the steps in the Joker are turning into that now. Yes, too. The, the they are now they are turning into. There are three famous steps in film the odessa steps the exorcist steps and the um the joker steps odessa steps right? it's from the battleship potemkin oh, okay. there's a uh, famous scene of like some some 
some kind of battle that takes place there. Huh. And it's referenced, It's it's been referenced in a bunch of other movies. Well, there's also the 39 Steps, which is the name of a great movie. But is are there 39, is it like a set of 39 Steps that are featured in the movie? In a long time, but I believe so. Oh, okay. Um, Maybe that's the fourth. And uh, there have been a lot of romantic movies where the Spanish Steps play prominently in Rome. Oh, that's true. But they are they were famous already for different reasons. Yes. And uh, so no, you you've taken students to Rome, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been, I've been to the. I was just there. Well, not just, but relatively but recently. Are they still owned by France? I believe they are. Then, like, and the Italian government leases them for a dollar a year or something like that. I have a vague memory of a of a of a tour guide telling me something about this, but I was I was operating on about an hour and a half of sleep when he said it, and it was six months ago, or yeah five months ago, so I've already forgotten. Sadly, right, we'll look it up. But I, I think there's something about Napoleon and those steps, and um, um, which I just think is cool. It was that Napoleon was too short to get up them. That, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm so kidding. it's funny. Uh, uh, speaking of that, um, I've never been to Romania, but well, that that'll keep you safe from vampires. But I when I lived in Prague. I was sort of fascinated, and I kept thinking about going. And um, apparently the steps for the presidential palace where the Ceausescus were, they deliberately made this – and maybe I've got this wrong, but this is what someone told me at the time. Uh, they deliberately made the steps gargantuan so that it was, like, physically difficult to climb the steps and made you feel small oh. as you went up to go visit with the horrible dictator. Oh, this this – I'm reminded of two things. One, more relevantly, the fact that Stalin was carefully – uh, positioned in all t- photos taken of him to distract people from the fact that he was not actually that tall. Yeah, he was like Dustin Hoffman height. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, who was almost going to who who was going to play him in a movie at one point, I think. So that that explains the phrase. You know, you got to stay on your toes like Stalin at a urinal. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a, like Stalin at a urinal. Um, uh, said Frank Drebin. The other thing it reminds me of is the uh, Simpsons episode where uh, Homer. Quits his job and then has to beg for it back. And uh, the receptionist, when he gets back to Burns' office, asks him uh, eh, what he's there for. And he says, it's to get my job back. And there's a door that says applicants. Uh-huh. And then there's like a dog door that says supplicants on it. <laughs> and so he's made to crawl through the supplicants door. I, I like it. I like it. Don't get any ideas. So, uh, well, so I'm always careful. There, I really want to do an episode where I tell a lot of these horrible boss stories, and I hope I don't get in trouble with a friend of mine who told me this story. But John McLaughlin of the McLaughlin Group fame. The Dana Carvey uh, guy? Yeah, but the, the real guy. Um, the guy upon whom Dana Carvey was based. Um, oh, wow. He didn't just make that up? Yeah. Um, was legendarily one of the worst bosses in in Washington, or at least in media world. And... One of the things he would do is the phone system was set up so that he could put all the phones on speaker and bellow out orders to the entire room. And he would never designate who was responsible for filling his most menial tasks because he wanted to create an air of panic. And so he would bellow into his phone, JM needs cocoa. And that meant John McLaughlin, he referred to himself as JM in the third person. And he was demanding that someone make him hot chocolate. And But he wouldn't designate the person. All the phones said this at the exact same time. And everyone had to look at each other as like, am I the one who's going to do this menial task right now? Wouldn't that have just resulted in him getting like dozens of cups of, of hot chocolate? No, because any any mistakes in protocol, even that ones that were generated by him, would – um uh, yield punishments. Oh, so if if more than one was brought, he would just like throw it at the person who brought it. Something like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I got a lot of those kinds of stories, um, including for people I worked for. Um, all right. So, uh, congrats to the Nats. Um, do you watch the game? Mm, I watched some of it. Yeah, I watched some of it as well, but I was working on very little sleep, and um, so I, I missed the exciting end of it. But to bring things around, you know, uh, for people who are still noodling out or trying to diagram my little rant at the beginning of this thing, it's funny. It's like imagine for the sake of argument that you're a huge Yankees fan and you're watching that game, right, between the Nationals and the Astros. You don't have a huge investment in the outcome of the game per se, but you can still love baseball, right? And – that's sort of my point about being in the remnant is that, you know, love the country, love politics, love conservatism. 
I just don't feel like I have any teams to root for. So that's sort of how I feel about that. So everyone, uh, please sign up for the the morning dispatch for the G file. For has David French named his thing yet? I can't remember. Uh, I don't think it has a name other than like the David French dispatch. Yeah, it needs a new name. Um, someone joked that they should call it Drag Queen Lunch Hour, but uh, we're not going to do that. And um, and please keep the ratings going. Please help spread the word about the podcast. It's really important. And, you know, if you can give us a nice shout out on Twitter or various places on social media, that's great. And uh, thanks again for listening. And wait, so Tuesday, the the Rich Lowry episode that we recorded comes out? Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Because I'm going to be in Houston with Dan Crenshaw for an NRI event um, on Monday. So that's convenient. Um, and then... Um... Uh, keep finish it up. I just thought of something. Okay. And so anyway, uh, thanks to everybody, and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks for the support, and um, I'll see you next time. Fear is the mind killer. Rob was not there. Well, he wasn't around for like the first ten minutes. Oh, and we were where making, was he? He was late. <laughs> you so. just started without him. I had such a hard out that we figured. Oh, we going, so. And so he just showed up. Like, hey, hey, in. guys, yeah. I'm here. Hey, it's Rob. Long. It's TV's Rob Long. <laughs> I think that's what I said. Um, that must have been at least comical. That sounds like something he could make funny. Yeah, I mean, there were it's moment. There were moments, I guess. I I never really know what's going to play well on Glop until I hear the feedback about it. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs>